0: It is now my pleasure to introduce Mary Ann Dougherty, who will introduce a completely different writer who I think you'll enjoy very much. So please welcome Mary Ann. So um, I'm gonna tell you about, oh I don't know, it was months ago, uh, I was on a, um, I get a newsletter that comes in my inbox, it's a magazine, that ARP does called the Ethel. It's fabulous, it's for women over 55, some of them are older, and there was a wonderful piece in there that somebody wrote about how she lost her best friend, that they had been best friends for 40 years and she didn't know how she was gonna go on not picking up the phone and talking to her. And I had just lost my best friend to COVID and I do the same thing. Oh, I can't ever call her again. It was just really hard, so I found her email address, somebody had it on this Ethel's page and I wrote her an email. I didn't really think I'd hear her back, you know. She was like a, a major best-selling author that penned this. But we got in touch and we emailed back and forth and she explained, yes, we talked about our mutual friends. So I found out unbeknownst to me, she's like been writing books. She has 14 books out. This her latest, Ms. Demeanor is her latest. And I had never, never known about you, which I can't even believe because I read a ton of stuff, but this is what happens there's a lot of books and you sometimes things fall through the cracks so i ordered her book rachel to the rescue and laughed out loud it was hilarious and then she had said she had a new book coming out called misdemeanor and it's a play on the word misdemeanor and when you read the write on it'll tell you what it's about it's very funny she's really a really like wry social commentary her, her books just really hit a nerve, what's going on in the world. And and then I bought her book called The Inn at Lake Divine, which I would recommend you getting. Uh, Chaucer's has a, a number of her books for sale downstairs, so go down and take a look, and she'll sign them. But um, Inn at Lake Divine was one of her earlier novels, and I loved it. It's great. So tomorrow when you get the daily briefing, I mention uh, the opening line from that book, because I'm doing a little thing tomorrow about grand openings, how... A first line of a book is really important and what it does, and I used a line from her book, and uh, she did, and then, and then I, I saw in Vanity Fair in December's issue, her book was one of the ten every month they recommend ten books, and there was Misdemeanor. and it's hilarious. Like I wrote her an email like, hey, I just you're in Vanity Fair like she wouldn't know that you know, but I, <laughs> I told her, and uh, so I was all excited like, oh look this person I know she's in there. And then she told me that in January this year, um, Barnes and Noble, uh, they named her, they named Ms. Demeanor. It was their fiction book for January. So that's like a big thing. And uh, anyway, I'm so happy that she just, she offered to I couldn't believe she said yes. It was like, I didn't, I didn't have to twist too much, but she was great about it. And she came in from Massachusetts. She was in the New York area. And um, she's going to talk tonight not about her book. She's not going to read from her book or anything. So you have to go down and buy some. Definitely get them. You'll love them. But she's going to tell you, she's going to share some advice that she's learned over the years that helped her from writers, editors, some stuff that she just figured out herself that'll help you be a better writer, navigate the publishing process, get your book ready for publication. So I think you're really going to enjoy her. And make sure to go down and, and get some books whenever she's done. Thanks.
1: It's Eleanor
0: Lippman. Yeah.
1: Hello, everybody. Um, I've been having a wonderful time. I got here s- yesterday. It's only yesterday. Anyway, it's been wonderful. So yes. Um, Many, many years ago, even decades ago, I was asked by a student, I was speaking at the Walnut Hills School in Natick, Massachusetts, what was the single best piece of advice I'd ever got about writing. I was so charmed by the question that I answered it in about a half a dozen ways. But that was at least 25 years ago, so the list has grown. And I chose the ones, the pieces of advice that I've never worn out, that I use all the time. And they're numbered. So number one, I, I as I mentioned in uh, Karen's workshop today, I started in a workshop. It was at Brandeis University Adult Ed, $40 for 10 weeks. and. My teacher's name was Arthur Edelstein, no longer with us. Anyway, advice number one, prepare to write badly. And then I quote um, Allegra Goodman, you must decide which you like better, the perfectionist within or the flawed pages at hand. (laughs) Number two, and this I've done many times, sometimes the best way to revise is to start something new. Now, I read in a May 2006 interview with one of my heroes, British novelist Faye Weldon. I think she's best known for The Loves and Lives of a She-Devil, a sort of literary, comedic, wonderful, wry author. So I read this. If you get to the end, and this was I think in The Guardian, a friend, London London Times, a friend brought it back. If you get to the end of chapter three, she wrote, of your novel and come to a full stop, you haven't got writer's block. You've just said all that you've got to say. When this happens, you have to rethink the whole book. No, wait, hold on. Are you interested enough to go back to the beginning to develop your ideas? Sometimes it can be as simple as introducing another character or subplot. But if it feels too painful or difficult, then it's almost almost certainly wrong, and you should just give over. In other words, it doesn't say this, this is what I'm saying, it's not you, it is the work. So that's a little, so I found that, so no writer wants to hear that, but I thought um, well, how can I fix this? I've thrown many, most beginnings of any novels. I always have false starts. But in my last two novels, I thought, hmm, what was that thing Faye Weldon said? I think I need to add another character, someone brand new. And I did this with um, my latest Grievance, which is two books ago. And in my latest, no, wait, hello, Misdemeanor, my character is under... The uh, formal legal term is under home confinement, but we affectionately call it um, house arrest. And so, you know, within it didn't take long, maybe 30 pages, and I remembered what Faye Weldon said. And I thought I need to introduce a brand new character. So I had my character's doorman hint that there was someone else in the building who was also wearing an ankle monitor. So that brought about um, Perry Salisbury, a love, a love interest eventually. And um, also, another really for me unforgettable piece of advice was early on I was working on my first novel and I was just having a bagel with a friend in Northampton, Massachusetts and he was just at the same stage I was, only he'd gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop and I had not, and he said, I was feeling a little stuck, and he said, why don't you jump ahead and write a chapter that you know will be in there eventually. And I forget what it was, but I thought, well, that'll be good. I'll forget feeling stuck, and I'll go ahead, and I'll write this chapter. And then he had said, you know, and then what you'll do is you'll write a bridge to that chapter. But what I discovered was I didn't have to write the damn bridge that just by sort of psychologically you know, not working it out too much. Just go ahead, write something, wedding, funeral, whatever it was, and I was there. Not done, but you know, skip ahead. Write something that you think is in the future. Tell yourself you're gonna write a bridge to that. You might not have to. Um, Oh, okay, this is something I use every day. I a couple of summers in a row, I taught a summer writer, two week writers workshop at Bennington College. And I to help my students, I went around and I asked my fellow faculty their best tip for what you do when you feel stuck. So it was a little bit of the you know like Go to a different, you know, if you're writing at your desk, go to another room, or if you're using, you know, you're using on your laptop instead, do a pad paper. But the best advice, and I do this all the time, and it was by Carol Edgarian, who was a San Francisco writer, and she said, "Go back to the truest line." And I just, and I find that I don't think it needs that much explanation. But I'm moving ahead and I've got a few sort of rubbish lines. It's a few lines of dialogue that maybe aren't going anywhere and I'm doubting them. And I just sort of move backwards until I find the truest line. And that is a major help for me. Now, I quote John Gardner a lot. I'm a big fan when I teach. I use his book on becoming a novelist, which is not, you don't have to be writing novels to get. wonderful advice for him. But he says, said, he's no longer with us, the first quality of good storytelling is storytelling, which I amend to a writer's first duty is to storytelling. He said brilliant technique is a nuisance if it pointlessly prevents us from seeing the characters and what they do. And my late husband, I'd be reading a book, and he'd say, do you like it? And I'd say, well, you know, the writing is beautiful. And he'd say, you hate it. So anyway. (laughs) Now, I also follow all the time the advice it's The playwright David Mamet, who was quoting the screenwriter William Goldman, which is, get into a scene as late as possible and get out of it as early as possible, and sometimes a lot. I just keep covering up lines to see when I can start. And you know, I've learned that I don't want to walk my characters in the door and ask the, you know, have the hostess seat them or they check their coats. That I can begin like skip a space, and a character says, "I ordered the clam chowder." That. We know where we are. You don't, order, uh, you don't order food in your own house. We're in a restaurant that I've, so I follow that advice, get into the scene as late as possible. And one of the examples, I was working on one of my novels, and a character is just learning the long story about how her mother died. And then there's this sort of funeral cortege, and in the draft, I first have her repeat to the policeman who's directing traffic just what she's heard about the sort of accidental death of her mother. And so I kept putting my hand over all that second explanation until I got to a line where the policeman says, I'm sure you know that we've thought about that. So none of it gets repeated, skip to space, and I just, the policeman says, you know, don't worry, of course we thought of it that we, so, okay, that's my own personal example of this. Um, now, let's see. Um, an editor of mine used to write in the margin in a novel she was of mine she was editing, we know this, and that is, I have told the reader five times <laughs> that the character in that particular book had a green apple VW bug. And we know this, so it's a little bit trust the reader. And when I was teaching one of the second year I was teaching at Bennington, I was saying over and over in class, it's, it's genug, which is Yiddish and it means enough. So I would say you know, genug on the green apple bug and genug on this and genug on that. And it just means trust the reader. Because you've written something months ago And maybe you're explaining what the house looks like or what the person looks like, and trust the reader because eventually the reader will be reading it, you know, more quickly than you did. Okay. This is one of my also, this is also a quote from John Gardner. Oh, and this helps. I do this all the time. He wrote, to change a character's name from Jane to Cynthia is to feel the fictional ground shudder beneath her feet. So occasionally it's just not the right word. and now of course we have that all find and cut and paste, and you can change a character's name like that, and you'll be surprised. The character I did with my book, Isabel's Bed, I forget what I'd name her. I named the character something a little duller, and when I thought of the word, the name Isabel, I suddenly pictured her, and she had you know sort of white platinum hair that was pulled back so tightly, and she had contact lenses that were kind of a swimming pool blue, but I saw her, and it was just because I changed her name. Now, number nine, avoid what Henry James called weak specification. That can be one of my pet peeves, be careful about this, a sentence with too many prepositional phrases, like out of the house, down the street, into the car. First of all, boring prepositional phrases, too many of them. And also by weak specification, the opposite of that is sort of lively, and and um, Monty talked about this last night. Not so much, you know, beautiful poetic description, but like livelier words, and you know, don't say she watered the plant. Say you know maybe she watered the split-leaf philodendron or something that has some character, some muscle, and maybe. The character watered the plant with bottled water. That says something about the character. You know, you can get a little more out of it. Who knows? And. So that also fits under the category of, look for the salient detail. And I remember seeing this, a writer named Tim Farrington in his first novel called The Monk Downstairs. A character named Bob, he's a, um, sort of incidental, he took character Kate and her little daughter out for soft serve ice cream. And he asked the ice cream guy, the clerk, for a receipt. And he'd taken it was himself. his date and the little girl. And I thought, that told me everything I need to know about Bob. And when sometimes in my reviews of my books, they will say about a minor character or a little character, um, didn't think it was that well developed. And my feeling is, too bad. You know, it is... um, You know, maybe it's as simple as you ask the ice cream guy for a receipt when you go take out someone else for ice cream. And someone that I admire greatly for that sort of lively combination of words, of, you know, an unexpected adjective modifying. Noun and the person that I am praising about this is Gary Steingart. And I was looking through some of his um, books today, and it was things like um, he describes a battleship of a face, and he describes he also has this wry, sarcastic view of life, and he described about a desperately urban person. And even the title of his memoir, which I love, was Little Failure About Himself. And he's talking about, um, you know, sort of sarcastically about his life. And, his, and, he, and he describes his diary. He calls it My Undeserving Diary. And I wondered, is anybody here an, um, native speak, a, a native Russian speaker? Anybody? because um, I thought of this today when I was thinking about Steingart who was, came to this country when he was about eight or nine or ten and that Nabokov said who spoke uh, many he spoke several languages his wife Vera I highly recommend Stacy Schiff's biography of Vera Nabokov won the Pulitzer Prize one of my favorite biographies um, I wondered if Steingart's fluency had to come with the, Nabokov said that Russia, Russian was the most sort of creative language of the languages that he had; that it had the most words. I thought, really, it doesn't? Okay, anyway, um, okay, back to John Gardner. He said, "You've heard this before about be, you know be easy on the adverbs." John Gardner said, "Adverbs are either the dullest tools or the sharpest." in the novelist's toolbox. And he uses as an example a sentence by the novelist David Rhodes. He describes a couple sitting on their porch swing, and he said, Wilson rocking it slowly and conscientiously back and forth. So I think that's, for me, that's an example of the sharpest tool in the box, that you don't want to say, um, He said something angrily. This is my writing teacher talking again from way back at Brandeis. Um, You know, don't say he said something angrily. Have him, like, throw the cat out the window to show how mad he is. Okay. (laughs) Now, something else, this came up in class today that I spouted. Make the reader an equal partner. And I discovered when I was teaching. Especially teaching at Hampshire College, um, that my undergraduate writers often felt that I am—they were feeling like I am so subtle that I like that you don't know what's going on. I want you to figure it out, and I want you you to—you know—so. Um, And I think that the best example of making the reader an equal partner is this. And it's by Peter Taylor in the opening of his novel, The Old Forest. And I quote it. I was already formally engaged, as we used to say, to the girl I was going to marry. But still, I sometimes went out on the town with girls of a different sort. And during the very week before the date set for the wedding in December, I was in an automobile accident at a time where one of those girls was with me. It was a calamitous thing to have happen, not the accident itself, which caused no serious injury to anyone, but the accident plus the presence of that girl. And, you know, my feeling about that is he's just, he's not, afraid to tell you exactly what's going on and it defeats the advice about show don't tell because even you know one of the first things I learned in Arthur Edelstein's writing class was you can tell when the telling is really good And if you can do that well, if your exposition can sing, and I feel that this does too. And this is just plain speaking, interesting writing to me. Okay, now this is a real um, bugaboo of mine. And this is, it's also a bugaboo of Elmore Leonard's, where he says, don't start with the weather. (laughs) Okay, you all do it. You all do it. You do it. And I once judged a contest, and it was book length short stories. And when I tell you that two out of three, every freaking story began with a description of the sky or the weather, or sometimes some, you know, flora, fauna, or something like that. And it's always been a puzzle to me, and I ask people, and somebody said it might be something that's taught. In MFA courses, or it might be kind of cinematic. Start big, and then narrow it down to the person. But Elmore Leonard says um, about leaving out the about leaving out description. He says the reader is apt to leaf ahead, looking for people. <laughs> and one of my One of my editors was talking about a book she loved. And she gave it to her son, who was about 13, 12, 13, 14. And he was like, "Eh," kind of lukewarm about it. And she said, you didn't like it. And he said, too much wind in the trees. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And also, um, Elmore Leonard always said, I try to leave out the parts that people skip. Now, the, this is something I have to work really hard out at. This doesn't come very naturally, but... And this is, um, again, this is John Gardner from The Art of Fiction. The writer must present, moment by moment, concrete images drawn from a careful observation of how people behave, and he must render the connections between moments, the exact gestures Facial expressions or turns of speech that within any given scene move human beings from one instant to the next. So the short version of that is, you know, I write, dialogue comes easily to me. And in arts class, when he was getting my first or second not very good stories, I mean, I was such a beginner that he would say, he said things like, you know what's nice. <laughs> if you can interrupt the dialogue maybe like have your have your character take a sip from a glass of wine like oh that's good and the Stacy, the aforementioned Stacy Schiff, who wrote, you know, Pulitzer Prize, and she wrote Cleopatra, she was my first editor. She was 25, and she, I know, she was 25, the girl editor, I used to call her, and she was at Viking, and she wrote next to a passage of dialogue, that she wrote in the margin, could someone here please pass the potatoes? <laughs> and, it, And uh, my agent with that, with my first novel, she, before she sent it out, she said to me, you know, she liked everything about it, but she said there was one thing, my character's name was April, and she said, if I wanted to buy April a present, I wouldn't know what to get her. And I thought, that you know, true, I didn't describe what she wore or her where she lived. And I went back, and I described that her furniture was inherited from her mother. And I gave her that agent's kind of the way she, like her long-waisted kind of, you know, sort of uh, hippie dresses. So that was fine. I got her dressed, thanks to my agent. But that was always... Um, very helpful. And Karen, I'm so happy, said in class today, she doesn't describe people. And I said, yay, I don't either. And I get a couple of examples of not doing that, where it almost I didn't matter. In one of my books, there was a nurse, a male nurse named Leo. And Leo worked in the, in the neonatal intensive care unit. And the only thing I said about him was that he had he was probably 35, 30. He had acne scarred skin, and that he had a little sort of play koala on his stethoscope because he was in. You know, we work with babies, and when the book was reviewed, almost everybody described him as being handsome, and. Well, it says something, I guess, about values, because he was a lovely man, he was a good man, turned out to be the romantic hero of the book. There's always a romantic hero in my books. And similarly, in... Um, good riddance. I Jeremy lived across the hall, and the only description I, I told his age, but I also said at 25 he was wearing braces, and he was a lovely man. Same thing, like the handsome guy across the hall, and. Um, So I guess this is saying, you know, some salient detail. I remember starting for the first time I'd ever read, and the only time, no offense to Sue Grafton, but I got to like the beginning, and she starts describing, she starts with like the brow, and then the eyebrow, and then the eyes, maybe the eyelids, and the nose. And and I thought, well, I know, you know, maybe in police procedural, you have to, that's how you have to write that down or something but I have found that the reader pictures their own person. You know, as we said in class today, you don't want to find out on page 90 that the character has red hair, because then you have to reimagine the character, or the age, the person, you know, the person isn't 25, the person is 55. So little hints help, but I thought that this was, I'm reading, luckily, The advanced reading copy of Stephen Macaulay is one of my favorite novelists. Very smart, funny. And his upcoming novel is called You Only Call When You're in Trouble. So I read this sentence and I underlined it and then I copied it down. He's describing a character's boyfriend in one sentence. He says, As for the rest of his appeal, well, look at the guy. (laughs) And I thought... I love that, <laughs> and we'll look at the guy, and you pick him, you pick him, you picture him yourself. So anyway, good, good on you, Stephen Macaulay. Um, oh wait, did I skip a page here? I did. Oh, that's terrible. <gasps> oh, okay, this is important. No, weak specification did that. Okay. This was something else in my first writing class with Arthur Edelstein, and that was a woman named Bernice Raven. He he used to read the, the stories, and he read this class. He read this story, and it was called "Cabin Class to Popianica." I hope I got that name, and it was set in the '30s in. She was the daughter, the narrator was the daughter of an American immigrant butcher who'd made it big, who'd come from the shtetl in Poland and had made it big. Well, not made it big, but he was a successful uh, um, uh, butcher in, who knows, around Boston, and was taking the family home cabin class to this ghetto and this was the 30s the 30s in Poland so you get that and the Holocaust is never mentioned, but the aunt, his sister is behind there behind, left behind, and she's a butcher and there's blood on her apron and you get the idea, you get the idea and it's just this brilliant story where the father's profession is used as sort of a foreshadowing. but the point of view is from this you know bored 60 15 year old girl from Massachusetts who's dragged back to the old country on vacation. And so you hear the scorn in her voice and the boredom and everything like that. So when he finished, he said to the class, so what do you think? And we all said like, ah, oh, it's perfect, oh my God. And he didn't like that, you know, he wanted feedback. And he said, so you know, no, nobody, nothing, nobody had any criticism. So he said, Bernice, um, okay Bernice, I have a question for you what if your father hadn't been a butcher in real life? What if he'd owned a gas station? So Bernice said, and she was very dramatic, and she said, oh, I think I would have used these sort of metaphors about, you know, the sort of liquids going through the the pipes, and she went on a bit, she went on a bit, and he let her go on a bit, and then he said, no, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is, I would have made him a butcher. And it was like this profound moment because all it meant is, you know, you have to learn when to lie. And in class today, is Liz here? Liz, are going to no? Oh, because in the it, it, one of the stories today, the character was 22, and I said, you know, did she have to be 22? And she said, well. You know, it's kind of about me, and I was 22, and I thought, you know, sometimes when I was teaching a story, there was f- five kids in the next in the house, and I said, you know, do you need all those kids? Do they really add to the story? And it's like, well, there were five kids in the house next door. No, you got to learn when to lie. Okay, okay, that was Bernice. She's no, and that story was later published in the Massachusetts Review. This is something else I learned from art. We're reading a story, he's reading a story aloud, and he said to us that the writer's feet were showing. So he had to explain... And he had explained what that meant. And what it was was the character, a woman, had the car had broken down, I think, or something. And she opened the hood of the car, and she manipulated something and fixed what was wrong with it. And the author wrote, She'd taken a course at the local adult ed something or other where she learned how to do this. And he, that's what he said was the author's feet were showing. And sometimes we do that. We do that where we, something's done and we feel like we have to explain now how we knew that, how the reader will accept that maybe that woman, why would she know how to fix a car? So author's feet showing, it comes up, more than you know, you'll find it in books you read written by other people. Now, um, Elmore Leonard again. And this has to do with talking about description. And what I consider one of the things I don't like about it is it often feels for it, like a reach to sound poetic, or as my old editor used to say, poetique when it's when it's a reach. And Elmore Leonard said, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. And something I use as a test from most fiction, and it's a sentence, and it was a sentence of criticism that H.G. HG Wells wrote to Rebecca West about a novel of hers that he didn't think was quite working. And he said, I want to believe it's a life I am living rather than a book I am reading. And I remember, and it was that same contest I was judging with all the short stories, and it was one after the other, and it felt like writing. And I remember I was sitting at the counter at a restaurant in Northampton, Massachusetts, where I lived, and I remember the moment I was reading this story about this Young man whose father had been stop, found stopping at a roadside rest stop, which was he went there and you know would meet other drivers and have sex, and and it was about you know that. Disgrace, And it just felt so real that I remember where I was when I read it. It was was like, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. It's like a life I'm living, not a story I'm reading. And it went on to win, I'm happy to say, won the contest. I wasn't even the final judge, but Brett Lott agreed with me. Um, As I said, Stacy Schiff was my editor, and she when I finished the rough draft, what I thought, no, I finished, I thought I finished my first novel. And I said, I think I'm done. I think I'm sending it to you. And she said, go back to the beginning and see if you went where your ticket said you were going. <laughs> and I found, find, but again, you've been writing something for a long time, and you can go back and find something in your first chapter, your first page, that you didn't, that that um, you know reminds you, oh yeah, where my ticket said I was going. And I'm going to end with this. It was advice from Tracy Kidder, who is um, a, a wonderful, he almost, I think the term creative nonfiction was almost invented for Tracy Kidder. Anyway, it was my first event ever. It was before my first book came out. I was petrified. I was so nervous and he you know before it started he said, you know what's the matter and I said, you know it's oh you know the first book, I'm nervous like I don't know what kind of you know I'm hoping I would get a good publisher's weekly review And he said something that I have to remind myself a lot. He said, There's the writing, and then there's everything else. And by that he meant reviews, sales, bestseller lists, prizes. I think today he would say Instagram, what other people are posting about their own books that could drive you crazy, and Facebook, and other people's self-promotion. And I think he would say that, that there's the writing, and there's everything else. So thank you. Would anyone have any what's questions? questions. <laughs> um, what's your next book after mister misdemeanor? Uh, I, I'm, I'm about 80, no, I'm about n- almost 198 pages into the next one. And it's about my character owns uh, an estate sale business. She's inherited it from her parents. So I need a title. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, and I'll be, oh, yes? I watched a movie that one of your books was based on. Then, I mean, the, then she, she found me. Then she found me. What was it like to see your book turned into a movie, and did it change your life? Oh, you know, it got, uh, the, the, it got option before, you know I mean, I knew that the Godfather was a book first, and I knew that um, what Mary Poppins was a book first, but it was a, like a shock to me when I got a phone call that people were interested. My first novel, so this is, and the book hadn't come out yet. So that, I heard about that option in something like the book came out in 1990, the movie came out in 2008. And my son was in first grade, and I picked him up at school. And it had been optioned by a Sigourney Weaver, who it ended up being made by Helen Hunt. But you know those things happen. And, and he'd seen Ghostbusters, so I said, "Mummy's um, book, you know, Sigourney Weaver." And and he said something that I don't think many first graders say. He said to me, um, "You're not doing it for the money, are you?" I know, I know. And then, like twenty—I don't know how many years—he was twenty, like wait, six years old, six and eighteen, six and nineteen. So he was about twenty-five when he came to the premiere. And I, during the reception, I brought him over and introduced him to um, Helen Hunt and her partner. And he, my son, put his arm around me and he said, um, "I hope you know you made my mother's decade." But, um, <laughs> but it—you know—it took forever. It took forever, and uh, the, the, the writer, the very fine novelist Meg Wallitzer the a friend, and when she heard about the option, she said, oh, um, think of it this way. Think of it as a character, a movie based on a character suggested by the book. <laughs> then she found me. But I, I loved the movie. It was very different it kept april the teacher and dwight no no never mind there's hardly anything left but i loved the movie and it made me You know, it took so long that i was very well adjusted about the changes because i was so happy that the movie was finally coming out um so um it you know it was it was fun it was fun to talk about and um I got to meet, it was, um, I met Bette Midler. I went to the filming and I met her, and so we had one exchange. She said to me, Great earrings. (laughs) That was it? it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, Nancy. Oh, wait, Nancy. I was just going to ask so, 20 years later, Did did book sales spark? You know it. They did. It did, and the (laughs) the book, the paperback with the reissued movie tie-in cover, it hit like a huge number twenty-three on the New York Times bestseller list. So you know, and they they no longer have that extended list. So too bad, but yeah. 23. Yeah. The publisher was happy. Right, 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 right. But I'll be, you know, obviously we love the books arrived, so I'll be signing books. So ask me anything down there. I'm happy to chat as long as you want me to.